interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you. Um, so, Terry, you invited questions about that um, uh, retreat, right? Yes. It's mid-April now, and that retreat is mid-June. They had five feet of snow in Upper Michigan last week. It'll all be gone. gone. Okay, that was my question. (laughs) (laughs) You're sure of that? (laughs) Okay. Um, My topic for this third and final talk is how to do it. We've heard three, I thought, wonderfully eloquent uh, presentations, and this is going to seem very flat-footed. Nothing much to do about that. So suppose you agree with me in the mission calling of the Christian scholar in the contemporary university as I presented it, Um, how to think with a Christian mind and speak with a Christian voice in the pluralist dialogue of your own discipline. How do you go about doing that? Uh, How do you learn to do it? What are the resources for doing it? Uh, That's what I'd like to say a little bit about and, and almost I guess all such how-to-do-it things are flat-footed, so nothing much to do about that. A prior question, which is a, which I raised and other people have raised, is whether you're going to be allowed to do that, to speak with a Christian voice. Talking about religion is rarely going to get you into trouble in the contemporary academy. Well, I mean, there could be awful ways of talking about it, but, you know, that's by and large not going to get you trouble. It's it's when you do the other thing of speaking with a Jewish voice or with a Muslim voice or a Christian voice um, that troubles might arise. So, so some opening reflections about that. But I've really almost uh, this morning I said what I want most of what I wanted to say on that topic: how to speak with the appropriate voice. Um. People regularly describe Yale and all other such universities as a secular university. My experience was that that's a misnomer in Yale's case. I don't know about other cases, okay? It's much more aptly described, I think, as a pluralist university. I taught every year a seminar on the classical concept of God and took different facets of the classical understanding of God, eternity, simplicity, impassibility, so forth. Taught that in the philosophy department building. Uh, students got philosophy department credit for it, or they could get religious studies credit for it, or they could get divinity school credit for it, any one of those. Um, each year I turn in the proposal. It would go through all three of those entities and on up to a university committee. Nobody ever posed a question about it. Uh, I would have 40 students show up. That was too many for a seminar, so I'd have them write out a case for being allowed in. and. Um, I stressed it had to be an honest case, um, and I'd choose 20, 22, 24 of those who had made the best case. Um, and I said what I wanted to say there and went through the literature that I wanted to go through, Augustine and Karl Barth and so forth. Um, 
nobody in my hearing. I mean, you know, there may have been muttering behind my back. I just don't know about that. But in my face, nobody raised any question about that. And so my experience at Yale was that, was sort of, what's the problem? Um, when I hear people at other universities, I'm well aware that there, there are problems. So, so I think the situation differs profoundly from case to case, and that it's very difficult to generalize from university to university, even department to department, and decade to decade within departments and so forth. Um, the impression that some people get from George Marsden's book on the outrageous idea of Christian scholarship is that, except for some Catholic universities and some Protestant ones later, the universities are uniformly hostile to a Christian voice. And that was simply, that's not been my experience. And you understand me, I attach the qualifiers all the time. <laughs> yeah, maybe my experience was bizarre, oddball, and so forth. But how to find the voice in which you can speak, then, is the one of the crucial things. I mean, how to think as a Christian, but how to find a voice in which you can be heard without stiffening the backs of the other people or just feeling resentful and so forth. I don't exactly know what to say here except just to enter the conversation, you have to be conversant with the conversation. That's a very important part of it, I think. You're not going to enter this conversation from the outside. I think reductionism is a massive phenomenon across universities. But if you're on the outside and throw stones against reductionism, uh, it will get you nowhere. Um, yeah, I and my fellow Christian philosophers had to be had to be really knowledgeable in philosophy and good at it before we before we could find a voice, let alone one that could be heard. But, but you know what I mean? It, it, there are different conversations and different communities have, I don't know what else to call it, different voices, and you have to learn what that voice is in the university. And in my experience, you didn't have to cheapen yourself or demean yourself to find and to speak in that voice. Um, you try to find, my image is you try to find the nerve ends in the conversation. I mean, you listen also. Heather was making the point that you learn. So it's not just talking, it's, it's listening and learning. Uh, it's a crucial part of it, knowing how to listen. But then, you know, trying to persuade your colleagues, trying to find the points at which you can sort of pry and get them to say, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but now that you pointed out, uh, you got a point there and so forth. And it may take you 30 years to find those points. So part of the thing to say to you is, it requires patience. It's not going to happen, no matter how hard you work, it's not going to happen overnight. So patience is a big part of it. Well, okay, so finding the voice. As I said this morning, I think, to my ear, often when evangelicals are accusatory of the university, the problem lies as much with them as with the local university. They, they haven't found, they say things in a, Utterly inappropriate voice, and then think these awful hostile universities—they never—they never listen to what you say, and so forth. Well, so how to do it? No recipe. So these are just the blandest rules of thumb. One: 
find a community of like-minded thinkers, Christian thinkers with whom you can bat ideas around. A local community is, I suppose, best if possible. But nowadays, one of the really wonderful things about email is that there are electronic communities, and so you can talk to somebody in Australia, you know, whatever, New Zealand, and ten seconds later have a response, uh, actually easier often than walking down the hall <laughs> to find a colleague. The solitary thinker will find it very hard, impossible, to do what I'm proposing. Think with a Christian mind and speak with a Christian voice. In my own case, I was enormously privileged to be part of two such communities. One was the community of philosophers, community of people in general at Calvin College, but especially the community of philosophers. So, um, from the beginning of my time there, we met every Tuesday for just the philosophy department faculty, every Tuesday for two hours. The registrar didn't schedule any courses for those two hours on Tuesday afternoons. We would do nothing other in those two hours and talk about each other's papers, not anything else. We distribute paper, chapter, whatever that we had written in advance, and we'd go through that with fine-tooth comb. Start by saying, anybody have comments about the project of the paper as a whole? And then we'd go through it page by page. So I learned there, I guess the best thing to put it is both vision and craftsmanship. Good scholarship requires both a vision and craftsmanship. Um, the periods count sometimes. The commas. And secondly, I've been privileged in my lifetime to participate in and benefit from the formation of the Society of Christian Philosophers, which began in 1978 when some of us got together to form the Society of Christian Philosophers. When I entered philosophy, I knew that there were some Christians in it, but they and their public persona were I best to say elusive, with few exceptions, something like that. And I don't mean to dump on them for that, but that was that was the situation. Um, at the time, there was a collection that came out, New Essays in Philosophical Theology by Flew and McIntyre. Um, I read it, and what struck me about the book is that it was so worried. This was still in the heyday of positivism, and it was wondering whether we could even talk about God. So it was, a, it was a very worried book. Nonetheless, I honor them for having produced it. But then something happened, and um, collapse of positivism and so forth led to the founding of the Society of Christian Philosophers in 78. has about 1,500 members now. Um, quite a few of us have been members, presidents of the APA, the American Philosophical Association, so it's not just a little hole and ghetto thing. That community uh, has just been terrific. Um, so my advice to everybody is try to find, form, a community of people who are engaged in the same concerns. It's indispensable. Second, I say to students and so forth, immerse yourself in the riches of the Christian tradition. Uh, this is more relevant in some disciplines than others. I mean, the tradition of physics, uh, you know. But it's indigenous to Americans, and especially to American Protestant Christians, 
to think of themselves as beginning over. Always a matter of the imagery of beginning over. There's even in my own neo-Calvinist tradition been a lot of the language of beginning over. Uh, you and I, oh, let me give you the most dramatic example of that that has ever come into my presence. Six years ago, five years ago, I was teaching a seminar, summer seminar sponsored by the Pew Foundation on liturgy and art. And one of the students in it was Brian. You don't know who Brian is, so I'll just use his actual name. Brian teaches visual art in the Manhattan public school system. Brian is, uh, was, I think he's quieted down a little bit, but he was an ecclesiastical nomad. About every year he switched to a different church. So a very restless sort of fellow. An ecclesiastical nomad is the best way to describe him. And then one day, we happened to be talking about, I forget what, and Brian said, you know, in my current church in Manhattan, it's our policy never to sing anything that's older than five years old. I was absolutely horrified. <laughs> so I said, Brian, I went into a riff about, Brian, you are impoverishing yourself and you are, you are demeaning your forebears in the Christian faith by just ignoring what they've contributed to music and everything else. And Brian says to me, I probably mentioned the name of Augustine. So Brian says to me, hmm, I don't know. Augustine did a good thing in his day. We've got to do a good thing in our day. <laughs> this took me totally aback. You know. <laughs> if I'd had my wits about me, I would have said, but Brian, maybe he can help you to do a good thing in your day. But I, I was so taken aback by this that it, uh, well, I was speechless. I mean, there's an example of, of this rampant presentism of uh, it's got to be right now or, or it's worthless. Look, you and I are the inheritors of an enormously rich tradition of reflection on political issues, of reflection on artistic issues and art, reflection on economic issues, reflection on philosophical issues and so forth. And I think we've, we have come to impoverish ourselves enormously by acting as if it's not there, by remaining ignorant of it, by refusing to consult it and so forth. We have to do what we can to, I was going to say, keep alive the memory, resurrect the memory in many cases of the riches of the Christian tradition. Third, closely connected to that point, but worth emphasizing on its own, I think, is acquaint yourself with Christian theology. It is in theology that Christian over the Christians over the ages have reflected explicitly on the content of the faith, which is the Christian equivalent to the pious Jew meditating on Torah who comes to the surface in the Psalms and so forth. So the tradition of Christian theology. Yeah, it's fair to criticize it, all of that, but here's, an, here's a tradition of enormous, enormous worth that we impoverish ourselves if we don't know about it. And study scripture, of, of course. Scripture is the wellspring of the Christian mind. How could you possibly think with a Christian mind if you're ignorant of scripture and dismissive of theology? Parenthetical comment here. There's a lot of talk about world, Christian worldview nowadays, and, and it's often played an important, positive role. I think, to my ear, it's replaced talk about integration of faith and learning. So there is a Christian worldview, or I suppose strictly a range of them. But I think we've got to be a bit careful of placing worldview in between Scripture and our work. In my experience reflecting in this recent book of mine on justice and love, I found myself 
saying things informed by scripture, which had not occurred to anybody to put into any statement of worldview. So you've got to be open to, well, you see what I mean. Don't, don't replace world scripture with worldview. Allow it to play its own helping function, but uh, don't be open to thoughts that you discover in scripture that no worldview theorist has ever thought to write down. Fourth, resist the bandwagon mentality. I cannot tell you how nauseating I find it for Christians to be leaping onto any new intellectual fad that comes along and then leaping off the fad when it loses its sheen. So the political philosophy of John Rawls becomes widely discussed, and you can predict that within a few years there are going to be articles popping up in Christian journals to this effect. Can Christians be good Rawlsians? Deconstruction becomes widely discussed, and you can be absolutely sure that within a few years there are going to be articles popping up in Christian journals. Can Christians be good deconstructionists? Or can Old Testament scholars be good deconstructionists? Or can New Testament, you know, you can specify it, uh, and so forth. And so that one seems to have lost its chain. And there's going to be some other fad, you know, in the not distant future, and you're going to get the same spate of articles. Look, you know, I feel strongly about it. I find it nauseating. It's demeaning. Think for yourself. Learn whatever is to be learned from others. Of course, of course. But think for yourself. They were thinking for themselves. John Rawls thought for himself. Right? Right? Why shouldn't we think for ourselves? So, what that implies is, in a certain way, set your own agenda as a Christian scholar. Now, set it in the light of what's happening. Okay? But then... You've got your set of priorities and what's important and so forth. Um, another new point, or related point. Um, to those who are in the disciplines where, you know, the history of it is important. Cast a, I've learned to think that a very important part of the calling, whatever, opportunity of the Christian scholar is to cast a quizzical eye on the narratives that you were offered. In great measure, the narratives on offer in the academy are secular narratives. Let me give you two examples of that from my own work. Uh, I have a book on John Locke, studied John Locke, the Enlightenment philosopher, hard. I think Locke was a Christian philosopher, somewhat eccentric in his Christianity. He was probably a Unitarian. Um, he didn't like the councils. He wrote commentaries on Scripture late in his life, and his idea was to leap over the councils and go straight back to Scripture. You've heard this sort of thing before, right? You can't live in the southern U.S. without having heard exactly this kind of thing. Um, and that's no accident, because churches of Christ and disciples of Christ were profoundly shaped by Campbell, who was in turn a follower of John Locke. So I think Locke was, in his own way, a Christian philosopher. So I'm teaching modern philosophy at Yale. And I find an anthology in which there are big lumps of, of um, text from the philosophers. That's what I like. I don't like secondary sources when I'm teaching history of philosophy. And I don't like snippets. So this a big, fat anthology with big lumps. A big lump from book four of Locke's essay concerning human understanding. Uh, so far as I could see, it was all at book four. Didn't check in detail. So I signed the students one day. 
possibly not, well, I don't know. Sign the students one day this uh, chapter in book four in which Locke gives arguments for the existence of God. So I come to talk the next day about these Locke's arguments for the existence of God, and students start whispering to each other and so forth. So what's the problem? Locke doesn't give any arguments for the existence of God. But I said, of course he gives arguments for the existence of God. It was the assignment today. He doesn't give any arguments for the existence of God. So I look in the text, and lo and behold, the only chapter in book four that had been deleted was the chapter in which Locke gives arguments for the existence of God. (laughs) Now this is is to secularize the philosophical canon. There's an old word that I like here, boulderize. So some of you know a fellow named Tom Boulder who went through Shakespeare and removed the bad words. So it was boulderizing Locke. It gets me very angry. It was... um, and, and so the story of modern philosophy gets told as if it's a story of secularism, when, it, when it's not. Um, Reed, um, uh, Locke, um, Malebranche, Descartes were Christians. Um, so we have to learn to tell our own narrative. Here, here's another case. When I was working on my book on rights that Princeton Press is going to publish, I learned along the way that I had to deal with a narrative floating around about the origin of the notion of natural rights, a narrative told by Christians and others. Here is the narrative. That the notion of natural rights is a highly individualistic concept. It emerges either, most people say, from the secular philosophers of the Enlightenment, parenthesis, Locke was an Enlightenment philosopher and he was not a secularist, okay, close of parenthesis, so already we've got to raise questions about the secular Enlightenment. So, the story of human natural rights is that they emerge from the individualism of secular, in, of secular enlightenment, or, some people say, from the nominalism of William of Ockham, late medieval philosopher, that awful guy who gave rise to the Reformation, Descartes, and the Enlightenment. Um, so I had to confront this narrative. And medieval historian right here from Cornell, Brian Tierney, has a book of about 10 years old in which he shows just indisputably that the canon lawyers of the 1100s were working with the idea of natural human rights. It's about as clear as anything ever gets in intellectual history. So the narrative is mistaken. I think the notion of rights is, a, is in fact the Judaic and is a gift from Judaism and Christianity to the West. It was not invented by secularists. It was used by them. Well, of course. I mean, okay. So in all kinds of ways, we have to learn to tell our own narratives. We live with false, boulderized, secularizing narratives. Last, um, patience. Um, took me 30 years to see the light in philosophy of art. Patience doesn't happen right away. Um, to be a Christian scholar is to say very often, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable. It doesn't feel right to me, but I don't know. I don't know. I can't pinpoint what's wrong, and I certainly can't tell you what, how we ought to think instead, but I'm going to think about it. Okay? Patience. And prayer. And worship. One of, um, I guess it was Richard who mentioned that. Um, the project of Christian scholarship becomes brittly, brittly intellectual if it's not. Nourished is the word I want, I guess, by worship and prayer. Okay, some how to do it. Time for yep.
until 4 o'clock.